So this summer, I've been, uh, you know, having a break from school. Uh, for fun, I've been rereading The Lord of the Rings. Uh, that's the right response. And, and, and reading them. The book is always better. The movies are great, but the book is always better. I've been rereading The Lord of the Rings, and I, I recently came to the part um, where the fellowship has come into the land of Lothlorien. And if you're not a nerd, I'll explain. Lothlorien is uh, this sort of place like heaven on earth. It's, it's this safe haven that the fellowship finds at one of the darkest parts in their journey, and they have a time there to just rest and just behold the beauty and the joy of the land of Lothlorien. But time comes when they have to leave the, the kind of blessed forest and go back on their dark road. And as they venture off back onto their perilous quest, one character, Gimli the dwarf, he laments having to leave this beautiful, joy-filled place. And he says this, uh, I won't do the Gimli voice from the movies. I can't do it. But he says, why did I come on this quest? Little did I know where the chief peril would lay. Torment in the dark was the danger that I feared, and it did not hold me back. But I would not have come if I knew the danger of light and joy. The danger of light and joy. What he means is it's hard and sometimes even painful to get a taste of heaven on earth, to get a, a glimpse of glory and have to descend back into the trouble and the danger of life, of the journey you're on. So I couldn't help but think of the danger of light and joy uh, when I turned to this passage in Mark where Peter, James, and John follow Jesus back down the mountain of transfiguration, back into the mess at the bottom. Because if, if you remember from last week, Chuck led us through how uh, Jesus was transfigured on the mountain. Uh, they saw the veil pared back and a glimpse of Jesus' divine glory, that, that beauty and that goodness that made sense of all the troubles. Um, just like the fellowship leaving Lothlorien to resume the dark and dangerous road, Jesus and his disciples come back down the mountain to resume Jesus' ministry the hard work of ministry. And as we turn to read, we'll see they uh, don't get but a moment's rest. So let's read these first few verses in Mark 9, starting in verse 14. This is God's word. And when they came to the disciples, so when Jesus, Peter, James, and John came back to the other nine disciples, when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them as scribes do. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw Jesus, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And they asked him, he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you for he has a spirit that makes him mute and whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. And so I asked your disciples to cast it out, but they were not able. So can you see the chaos Jesus heads right back into? What's happened is while Jesus was on the mountain, a man came with a son deeply afflicted, especially afflicted by a demon. 
And while Jesus was not there, his disciples tried to cast out the demon. They said, don't worry, we've got this. And they did not have it. And they failed, publicly and humiliatingly. And the crowd was there to press in and gawk. The scribes were there to point and accuse them. So throughout Mark, we've gotten used to some of these scenes. Uh, the, the crowds, the people in need, the scribes and Pharisees. But even as they're familiar, let's not grow dull to what they signify. Namely, that Jesus' ministry was dark and hard and filled with suffering people, people in need. And whatever Peter, James, and John might have felt about wanting to go back up and see more glorious visions of Moses and Elijah, Jesus headed straight back into the hard work of ministry. So before we really jump in, just think of what that means. Christianity is not escapism. Jesus didn't come to just shield his disciples from the hard things of the world, but prepared them to go in and address them. Because Jesus is the Messiah who came to confront the powers of Satan, sin, and death. So consider how, for us, we, we might often long for mountaintop experiences of uh, an ecstatic moment, seeing God's glory. And, and by God's grace, God gives us those sometimes, but the point of them is never that we would simply navel-gaze, but that they would encourage us and prepare us to head back down the mountain, to bring the light and joy with us. In this life, anyway, we are always prepared to head back down the mountain as followers of Jesus. But anyway, what is the work of ministry waiting for them at the bottom of the mountain? There's kind of two problems in this narrative, two problems to address. One is very familiar, that once again, someone in need of saving has come to Jesus. This family, this father and his son afflicted by a demon, are in need of saving. But there's kind of a second problem in this story, uh, because Mark's told us a lot of stories about demon exorcisms. Why tell another one? One thing he highlights here is that the disciples publicly failed to cast out the demon. Why? In Mark 3.15 and Mark 6.7, Mark, Jesus had given his, authority, his disciples authority to cast out demons. Why do they fail now? So let's read on and find out. So after hearing the demon possession, uh, about the demon possession and his disciples' failed attempt, Jesus responds in verse 9. And as is so often the case in these stories in the Gospels, it's when Jesus speaks that you really hear the commentary on what's going on. So if you come to a story in the gospel and you're confused about what's really going on, a surefire way to look, a surefire place to look, is when Jesus speaks. He gives the authoritative, the authoritative commentary on what's happening. So in verse 19, responding to his disciples' failure and this family's need, Jesus' response is this. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. As is also often the case in the Gospels, that might not be what you expected Jesus to respond with. 
Maybe it's surprising or even uncomfortable to hear a response from Jesus that sounds like he's exasperated with people coming to him for help. But I don't think this is necessarily meant to uh, characterize how Jesus feels every time you pray to him. I don't, I don't think that's the point of what Mark's doing here. But I think Jesus' exasperation here we might call a lamentation. His lamentation is about the cause of the problem. The cause of why this exorcism failed. Why this father and his son are still in need of saving. And the cause he brings out, O oh, faithless generation. The main thing he laments is not brokenness, weakness, or sinfulness, but faithfulness. Faithlessness, rather. Unbelief. So when Jesus laments this faithless generation, he's diagnosing the root of the problem among them. Unbelief. And I don't think we need to puzzle about who exactly he's referring to, whether that's mostly the scribes or his disciples or the father and his son or the crowd, because he calls it a generational problem. Faithless generation. And he's exasperated because, as we've seen in Mark, this isn't the first time the, the villain of unbelief has come up. If you remember back to Mark 6, uh, Jesus was rejected at Nazareth, and it said he marveled because of their unbelief, and even that there was no healing done in Nazareth because of the unbelief there. Where there's no faith, there's no healing. And, and this language of, oh, faithless generation goes even further back. It's, it's the same type of language that God uses in the Old Testament when condemning Israel's unbelief and faithfulness. You could look at places like Deuteronomy 32.5 where it says, Israel have dealt corruptly with God. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Or Psalm 78 calls Israel a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. The story of Israel, friends, is a story of God's people repeatedly responding to God's grace and mercy with unbelief, responding to God's law with faithlessness, much to their destruction and eventually their exile. And when Jesus grieves it here, he's citing the problem that's still alive and well in the, in the context he came to minister to. That sickness of unbelief is still rampant among the people he would seek to help. Much like it's still rampant today. Our unbelief grieves Jesus. It grieves him because unbelief is the very rejection of God's power and goodness. Unbelief is the rejection of God's power and goodness. We see this borne out uh, as, as the conversation progresses. So look with me at verses 20 through 23. Jesus has called for them to bring the demon-possessed boy to him, and this is what it says. And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit, that, that's the demon, Mark calls it a spirit here, when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked the father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. 
and it has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. So, when the demon is brought to Jesus, it afflicts the boy exactly as his father described. And it's, it's brutal. It's seeking to destroy him. And Jesus compassionately asks about how long this has been afflicting him. The father tells him and asks this question that is riddled with doubt. If you can do anything, have compassion on us. And that's where Jesus kind of throws the question back at this father and says, if you can. Jesus is rejecting the, fact, or the, the notion that the limiting factor in this case is his power. Jesus' power is not the limiting factor. His ability to help is not the limiting factor here. Neither is it his compassion or his desire to help. But what does he bring it back to? He brings it back to unbelief. Because he says, to the one who believes, all things are possible. So again, Jesus brings the issue back to unbelief. Why was the demon failed to be cast out before? Because of unbelief, lack of faith. One of the realities that the Bible confronts us with repeatedly is that each of us, in different forms and in different ways, struggles with unbelief. Part of our sinful nature is that we are more apt to trust in ourselves than to take God at his word. Unbelief can take different forms, even as they're represented in the different characters of this story. Unbelief can look like uh, full-on unbelief, denial of who Jesus is. And that's probably where the scribes are at in this story. They think Jesus is a charlatan, a fraud. They simply deny him. Unbelief can also look like doubt, like the father who doubts whether Jesus has the goodwill or the power to heal his son. Or unbelief can be uh, a lack of trust, maybe uh, a mental knowledge about the things that are true and assent to those things, but lack of trust in the promises of God. As we'll see is probably the case with the disciples in this story. But in every case, whether denial, doubt, or lack of trust, unbelief is a refusal to take God at his word and trust him. We lack faith when we trust in our strength, our reason, our goodness over God's. And the point of the conflict in this story is that where there is no faith, there is no healing. Where there is no faith, no mighty works of salvation are done. Or, to put that another way, Jesus' power works on those who have faith. Jesus responds to faith, trust in him. Salvation is through faith. But there's a turning point in this story here. The turning point shows us unbelief is not more powerful than Jesus. Even your unbelief and my unbelief. Unbelief will not hinder Jesus' compassion. For one who believes, all things are possible. 
And so, after Jesus says that in verse 24, verse 24 says, immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. I believe. Help my unbelief. Isn't that a beautiful paradox? This father is confessing, I do believe in you, Jesus. I do believe you can help. And at the same time, I know there's unbelief in me. You've pegged me. There's doubt. And not doubt that's hard to understand. He has watched this demon terrorize his son since childhood. Years. And he just watched the disciples of this famous teacher try and fail to help. It's not hard to imagine why he would struggle with unbelief. But the thing that separates this father from the other stories in Mark where unbelief prevents Jesus from healing. In other words, the thing that separates this father from Nazareth, who rejected Jesus, or separates this father from the Pharisees, who uh, were scornful of Jesus, the thing that separates him is this prayer. I believe, help my unbelief. I can't overcome this unbelief, but Jesus, I believe you can. As we said, we all struggle with unbelief. Most of us have some variation of that tortured prayer, I believe, help my unbelief. Maybe for you there is a struggle with sin that has afflicted you for years. And you've put hope in all kinds of things to help you overcome it. Thought you were done with it so many times and fallen back into it again and feel, I will never overcome this sin. Or maybe there is a source of shame locked away in your past and you fear you'll never escape from that shame. Maybe you struggle with some pretty big level doubts about whether God exists or whether God really is who scripture testifies that he is. Maybe you struggle to trust God's word. Unbelief is a product of sin. We're all born sinners. We all struggle with unbelief. But with this prayer, I believe, help my unbelief. Church, your unbelief is neither incurable nor unforgivable. Your unbelief is neither incurable nor unforgivable. Struggling with doubts or unbelief or lack of faith does not disqualify you from God's grace. It does not disqualify you from God's love. The real crisis for us is not whether or not there's unbelief in our hearts. The crisis is what do we do with it? Do you double down on your unbelief? Do you become calloused and bitter? Do you say, well, God hasn't done this for me to this point. He never will. And if I can't trust him on this, I can't trust him on anything. Scripture calls this a hardening or a callousing of the heart. That's what happened with the people in Nazareth back in Mark 6. It's what happens with the Pharisees. But you are not doomed to go down that road. 
you need not double down on your unbelief. You can instead pray this prayer and say, despite my doubts, I believe. Lord, will you help my unbelief? Friend, do you struggle to believe that God can save you? Do you struggle to believe that you even need saving? Scripture testifies to both of those things. Do you believe what it says? If you struggle with those doubts, then you, like me, and like all of us in this room, are the very sort of person who needs to pray, help my unbelief. And the gospel truth of a prayer like that is that God graciously gives faith. God grants faith to those who lack it. God meets even our weak faith, even our tiny baby faith, and responds to it. And the reason is this. Faith is not a currency that we accrue to buy favors from God. Because it's not the measure of our faith that Jesus responds to. But it's the posture of our faith, the trust in him. And it's the object of our faith, not the measure that saves. In other words, it's not about building up a store of faith to buy salvation from God, but it's instead placing trust in the object of our faith, Jesus, who is not lacking in power or compassion to save. Faith is not a form of currency. It is a deep, active, rugged trust in Jesus. Trust that despite the corners I can't see around, despite the questions I can't answer, despite the evils I can't overcome, the sins I can't atone for, he is enough. And he is more than powerful to overcome those things, even if I can't quite visualize how at this point. Help my unbelief, I believe. If you're here today and have never placed this sort of trust in Jesus, if you've never experienced his salvation and still wrestle with unbelief, we're very glad you're here. Thanks for joining us today. My plea to you today would be to trust Jesus. Cry out to him and ask that he would help with unbelief. Each of us is in need of Jesus' power, much like the Father and the Son in this story. We're in need of Jesus' power. If you want to learn more about what that means to trust Jesus, what that looks like, I invite you to ask us. Ask the, the church member who brought you, the friend that brought you, one of the staff members, one of the members here, one of the elders. We would love to talk with you about what faith looks like in action. But... For all of us, even our small, weak, doubt-ridden, tiny faith is enough because it's not the measure of our faith, but the object. It's Jesus who saves. And that's exactly what happens as we kind of hit the climax of this story in Mark 9. After the Father shouts this desperate prayer, in verse 25 it continues and says this, When Jesus saw the crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I myself command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying aloud and convulsing him terribly, it came out 
and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. It was not the measure of the father's faith that earned the healing of his son. It was the power, the goodness, the compassion, and the grace of Jesus that saved him. Even a demon as severe as this one, Jesus casts it out with one word. He has the power to save. Then he took the child by the hand and tenderly lifted him up. He has compassion to heal. Though our faith is small, the object of our faith, Jesus, is mighty. Mighty and good, good and mighty. Neither Satan His demons, nor your doubts, can stifle the salvation the Messiah brings in. Jesus' power works through faith. So put your trust in Jesus. Jesus' power works through faith. Now, in one sense, after verse 27, the problem of the story is resolved in that uh, the, the demon has been cast out of the boy, this family is restored, but there's this kind of glaring loose end left untied. Um, And that's that the story began with this re-entrance into ministry and the disciples failing to cast out the demon, even though they'd been authorized to. So we still don't know why did the demon, why were they not able to cast the demon out? And that's exactly what the disciples asked Jesus in the debrief zone back in the house in verses 28 and 29. It says, when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. So to kind of understand that response, notice what Jesus doesn't tell them. He does not say, this demon was too big for you. You were in over your head. You, you couldn't have handled it. I gave you authority to cast out level one demons. This was level five. You never stood a chance. It kind of sounds almost like that's what he's saying. He says this kind. But he says this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. There's no suggestion that uh, in Mark 3.15 or Mark 6 that Jesus had not given them authority to cast out all demons. We even saw them do so successfully in those passages. But whatever the disciples did this time, it does not work because they were prayerless in their approach. So do you see how the two threads of this story start to weave together? In the first place, the demon-possessed boy could not be cast out until his father prayed for faith and help with his unbelief. And the disciples in the first place were not able to cast out the demon because they did not pray. Prayerlessness is a symptom of faithlessness. In both cases, whether with the disciples or with the father of the boy, the point is this. Jesus' power works through, responds to prayer because prayer is faith in action. Jesus' power works through prayer because prayer is faith in action. Prayer is not just 
the bowing of your head, and the uttering of words. More than that, prayer is not passivity or, uh, or nothingness. It's not a non-response. True prayer is the, the action that faith bears out. True prayer is faith in action. Prayer is the state of being a faith-filled soul. Real prayer comes only from a heart that has faith, that when I pray, there's a God listening, and there's a God that responds to his people, whose power and whose compassion are not the limiting factor. And real prayer has built into it this resignation to God's lordship, that God will hear my prayer, and according to his wisdom and his goodness, he will respond in the way he will. I'm not in control of this response, but I have faith that there's a God who sees more, who knows more than I do, and who is better, who is wiser, more good than me to respond. So prayer neither begins nor ends when you bow your head and say words. But that moment of prayer is just the fruit of a faith-filled heart, a believing heart. Whether it's Jesus's power to save, like in the case of the demon and his, the demon-possessed boy and his father, or it's the power to do ministry in Jesus' name, in either case, Jesus' power works through prayer because prayer is faith in action. You and I cannot be saved apart from faith. There is no healing where there is no faith, but you and I can also do no ministry apart from faith. Where there is no faith, there is no ministry. And where there is no ministry, like with the disciples who failed, where there is no ministry, we are of no use to anybody. In this world aching under the weight of sin and death, it is prayerful ministry that heals. This, this notion about there's no ministry with no faith, no ministry with no prayer, I think is actually closer to the heart of this passage. Remember, we began with the disciples coming back down the mountaintop, back into the mess, back into the brokenness, back with work to be done, and we're entering into the second half of Mark's gospel, where the first half was very concerned to show us who Jesus is, that he is, in fact, the Messiah, that he is the Son of God. The second half is going to focus more on the ministry that Jesus is preparing to hand to his disciples. And it's clear from this passage, there is a lot for them to learn still. These aren't the apostles of the book of Acts who are doing great works of faith. They're bumbling and messing up all over the place. And we're going to see even more of that in next week's text. They have a lot to learn. But the thing they don't understand here in prayerlessly trying to cast out a demon is that Jesus didn't give them authority to be their own little messiahs. Jesus gave them authority to carry out Jesus' ministry. The disciples were disciples of Jesus. They were helpful. They were powerful. They had authority to the extent that they depended on and represented Jesus. And the same is true for us. If I can speak to us as a church, let's consider what this means that Jesus' power works through prayer, and where there is no prayer, where there is no faith, there is no ministry. Ministry done in Jesus' name is through faith alone, because 
you and I are just as utterly dependent on God's grace to save us as we are to do ministry. We do Jesus' ministry at a church. As a church, rather. Let's define ministry a little more. It's a word that can get thrown around a lot. If you're a Christian, you're called to ministry. That might be uh, troubling news. That doesn't necessarily mean <laughs> doesn't necessarily mean you're called to be a vocational pastor. It's not, it's not necessarily a statement about your your vocation or career, but it's what Ephesians four one calls the calling to which you've been called. And uh, Paul talks about this further in Ephesians four in verses eleven through twelve. He says God gave apostles prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and pastors, and elders. He gave those things to equip the saints, that's us, the church, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. That means all Christians, that implies all Christians are meant to be doing the work of ministry. If you're a Christian, you're called to ministry. If you are a Christian, you're entrusted, not with any ministry, not with any message of good news, but with Jesus's. We are entrusted with Jesus's gospel. The good news of Jesus's death and resurrection and the, the salvation, the forgiveness and redemption from eternal punishment that is available in Jesus. To the extent that you belong to Jesus, you are a gospel minister. Ministry just means service, really to serve, to give out. And the thing that Christians give out is the gospel of Jesus, in the name of Jesus. And the point here in Mark 9, only by the power of Jesus. Gospel ministry might sound intimidating, but all it means is this, that we make disciples according to the good news of Jesus. You can do that. You're called to do gospel ministry with your friends and family who are not believers. That is, to proclaim the gospel to those who have not yet believed. Um, if you're a parent, you're called to do ministry to your children. As a Christian parent, you're called to do more than just raise a child to be a functioning member of society, though that's a noble goal as well. You're called to minister the gospel to them, to evangelize and disciple them. And even as we are church members here, our statement of fellowship spells out all these ways that we're committed to love and fellowship with one another as a form of gospel ministry, not as a mere social club, not as a mere way of being friends with one another, but as a way of expressing that we are one body united by the gospel, that we encourage and rebuke one another in light of the gospel in light of Jesus' good news, that we celebrate and mourn with one another and love one another and uh, are generous with one another in light of the gospel. Yes, if you are a Christian, you're called to ministry, but the key warning from Mark 9 is this ministry only works through prayer, through faith in action. Now, that's a warning on the one hand because prayerless ministry crashes and burns as we saw with the disciples at the beginning of this passage. It crashes and burns. But in addition to a warning, it's also an encouragement. Because if you're like me, all the weight of ministry is overwhelming. 
But the promise here is that in faith, there is power to do it. There is an equipment for the saints. Equipping that happens through the ministry of the church, but ultimately happens through God giving his power, entrusting his power to us. It's a warning and an encouragement because your life isn't just your ministry. Church on Mill doesn't belong to us. The good news of forgiveness and salvation doesn't belong to us. It belongs to Christ, to Jesus. So just like the disciples in Mark 9, it can be dangerously easy for us to to go through the motions of the Christian life without placing any real faith in God to be the one who brings the growth. We could do ministry without an ounce of prayer in our hearts, and it would be vain. It would yield nothing. And that's because discipleship and evangelism in the Christian life are only as effective as the God who works through them. There's nothing inherently magical about preaching or the Lord's Supper or baptism or gathering to worship together in fellowship or discipling one another or reading scripture together. There's nothing powerful about any of those things except that God has appointed those things to be the things he works through to grow and bless his people. So we do all the things we do as a body of believers in faith, trusting that God has said preaching is the foolishness of the world, but it's the means I use to grow and bless my people. Scripture is the means I reveal myself to my people with. We, we, we take the Lord's Supper as a means of participating in Christ and, and renewing the covenant with one another and remembering what Jesus does for us in faith because Jesus has appointed that means to bless us. Praying. So, so pray for progress in your sanctification. Participate in the means of grace that we do as a church. Praying in faith. Praying, God, I believe these means work, but help my unbelief. Praying, God, give me faith to receive your grace from your word in your church by the power of your spirit. I believe prayer is faith in action. And trust that Jesus will help you. Jesus gives faith to the faithless. Jesus gives assurance to those who doubt. And as to ministry, pray that you would do the work of ministry and believe that Jesus will equip you to do it. He is the one who makes our proclamation of the gospel effective. He makes our counsel comforting. He gives repentance to those we rebuke. He gives faith to those we encourage. He gives peace to those we mourn with joy to those we celebrate with. How God does that and in what timing and whether or not you see the fruit of those acts of ministry is out of our hands. But God has entrusted you with Jesus' own ministry. In faith and in joy, do the work of it. 
Each of us, like the disciples, is called to come down from the mountaintop headlong back into our broken world and bring the light and joy of Jesus with us. So saints, let's pray for faith to do just that. Jesus' power works through prayer because prayer is faith in action. Let's close now with a word of prayer. Father God, we thank you for your word, and we pray that you would give us faith to respond, responding in joy, in obedience, responding um, in the power and goodness of Jesus. We pray that we would be faithful ministers of the gospel of Jesus you've entrusted to us. Give us faith to be the church you have made us to be. And we trust that you are good and do good, that you will make us into who you want us to be by your grace. As we prepare to take the Lord's Supper, we pray we prepare, you prepare our hearts um, to receive it in faith. Amen.